Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our fellowship. We thank you for the work that you've done through Christ for us and that we don't have to somehow work for our own salvation. And Lord, that you accomplished that. It's done. It's secure. As we're going to look at this morning a little bit, it allows us to stand firm in our faith, even in the midst of trials. And so, Lord, we pray for our our children as they're dismissed, that you'd bless them and bless their teachers and bless the word to their hearts. And, Father, we also ask that you would uh, open our hearts and minds here in this room. Lord, that you would um, allow us to set aside the busyness of the morning and just focus on your goodness to us. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You can open up your Bibles to... Second Thessalonians, <clears throat> we're kind of going into the next section here of chapter 2. I'll ask for your, your prayers. I'm heading up to Idaho for my granddaughter's 16th birthday. Gabby's turning 16th in two days, so I'm going to, couldn't miss that one. That's a big one. So I'm coming back Friday, but, uh, and because I'm already up there. So I appreciate your prayers this afternoon as I head off to the airport, but and Kai will be teaching on, uh, Kai Noah will be teaching on Wednesday night, continuing through Genesis. So make sure you come out and encourage his, him as well. But Second Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, we're continuing this study and, and we're moving on from the description of this Antichrist character, the, this person that comes on the scene at the beginning of the tribulation. And... Uh, we're moving into this section where Paul actually exhorts, he wants to encourage, you could say, uh, these young believers in Thessalonica. And he wants them to know that um, they need to stand firm. And we'll see that in our text. And so we've called this standing firm in the faith in trials. Now we're not going to get through the outline today. Just going to hit the first part of it probably. But uh, with that being said, um, you can continue to read each week. So I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want to read verses 13 to 17. Verses 13 to 17. Paul writes, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, there it is, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Verse 16. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish you, establish them in every good work and word. Father, we ask you to commit this word to our hearts and minds as we open it up, begin to open it up this morning. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Just in case you've been hiding under a rock or living in a cave, we've been going through Second Thessalonians. We've been talking in the first chapter about 
the coming of Christ, and then the second chapter, the revealing of the Antichrist. And we looked at several points here uh, up to this, up to verse 13. And we said, first of all, he is revealed at the day of the Lord. It tells us that in verses 1 and 2. And then we said the departure of the church age believers will come first. The departure is the rapture. That will come first before he is revealed. Then uh, thirdly, we said the description of the Antichrist that reveals his real identity. We saw that in verses 3 and 4, and we spent a considerable amount of time going back to Daniel and other places to talk about who this character was going to be. And then fourthly, we said the day of his revelation is impossible until the restraint is removed. And we kind of dug down on that a little bit, and I believe that there's a lot of different views on this. I would say that this is the Holy Spirit in the church. It's not just the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit's omnipresent. So the Holy Spirit's going to be here during the tribulation. We know that because people are going to get saved during the tribulation. And you can't get saved without the Holy Spirit. So I believe it's, it's the restraint that he's talking about here is the force of the Holy Spirit in the church. Uh, and so until the rapture happens, his revelation is impossible. Fifthly, we said his destruction will come when the Lord returns in all his glory. It tells us that in Revelation 19. And it says, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing the appearance of his coming. Sixthly, we said that his deeds will be inspired by Satan himself. So this man will be Satan incarnate here on earth. Not a very nice character. And he's going to be given power, demonic power, to do many signs and wonders. And so people are just going to fall over for this guy. They're going to think, wow, this is him. This is, this is the Messiah that's come back. And remember, we said anti doesn't just mean against. It means in the stead of. And so uh, the Antichrist isn't coming back saying, I'm against Jesus, I'm against Jesus. No, he's coming back saying, I am Jesus. I am the Messiah. And that's how he begins to, is able to sign the peace treaty with Israel and say, oh yeah, you can build your temple, you can do your worshiping, you can do all that. And everybody's going to think, wow, this guy's just a great world leader. And they're going to fall over worshiping him. And then in the middle of those seven years, he's going to break his covenant with Israel and he's going to enter the temple where they were doing sacrifices. He's going to demand that he be worshipped. He's going to desecrate the temple. And then they will realize, wow, we've been duped. And it says that basically at that point, if you haven't come to Christ, it's going to be hard to come to Christ during that time. Because if you heard the gospel before that, it says God will send you a delusion, kind of like a, a way that you won't be able to believe. You, you will believe that he is the Messiah, this Antichrist character, and you'll follow him. And we talked last week about how those people who are, are under this delusion, uh, it will come from God himself. And they will actually, when the Antichrist says, you know what, you're not going to be able to buy or sell here on earth unless you worship me. And when you worship me, I'll give you a key to buy and sell. Something on your forehead, something in your right hand, it says. It's not a stamp from Knott's Berry Farm. It's the real deal, okay? So, and only unbelievers 
will take the mark of the beast. Only unbelievers. A believer would understand, well, this person is the Antichrist. And they will probably understand that if someone, after the rapture of the church, say someone comes to Christ after the rapture of the church, before the tribulation begins. And then they are able to witness this Antichrist character come on the scene, probably a political, religious leader. We don't know who it will be. It's not revealed yet, so we can't figure out who it will be because God doesn't want us to know who it will be. But it's going to be a surprise. He's going to come out of nowhere. And when he does, he will basically start the tribulation by signing a peace treaty with Israel. He will broker peace in the Middle East, which people have been after for many years, right? Uh, Well, he'll be actually do it. But then he'll break that. So if you're a believer entering the tribulation, you'll know who the Antichrist is at that point because of the simple fact that he's the one that's brokering the peace deal with Israel. And you'll be able to say, oh, that's him. So, And I think the Holy Spirit will give you the strength to resist him and even to the point of martyr, being martyred for Christ. Many will lose their lives during that tribulation period after the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years in, when he demands worship from everyone. And that's when he ushers in this, what we call the day of the Lord. This unbelievable uh, suffering here on, on earth that will be unleashed. And then we said, basically, uh, the ninth thing we looked at was the damnation of all those who are deceived will come in verse 12. And, and so the Antichrist literally will capture the world. You know, you hear about world leaders. I, I read a, a thing online of, I, I, I want to say it was Prince Andrew before he was uh, uh, king. Anything king? King Charles. Or king, yeah, King Andrew. Charles. It was, it, I think it was Prince Andrew was the quote. Um, but, and they were talking to him in this, in this article about what he thought, you know, he'd probably never be king or whatever. And you'd probably really like to be king of England, right? And he says, no, I want to be king of the world. He actually said that. This is back in the 80s. And, and so it was interesting that, you know, people have that mindset. And, you know, I'm not saying he the Antichrist or anything. I'm just saying that people do have this desire for world power. For world power. And so when he comes, he will literally capture the world. He becomes a religious, a political leader of some sort. And people will really worship him as God, as he demands. Now we can't even relate to that. Somebody said, oh, you have to worship me. I would say, no, I worship Christ. I worship God alone. Um, but remember, they're, you know, under this delusion because they rejected the truth. They heard the truth, but they rejected the truth. That's why it's so important to understand that today is the day of salvation. If you haven't come to Christ and you've heard the gospel, don't wait. It doesn't make sense to wait. It's not going to work out good for you if the Lord returns. But we see here this Antichrist is a very important figure in history. And you say, well, why does he, Paul bring this up? I mean, he's talking about the coming of the Lord and in chapter 1. It seems like all positive. And then he gets into this Antichrist stuff. And we said, basically, they were 
they were a little confused, the Thessalonians. They were a good church, but they got their eschatology a little confused. And they were going through horrendous trials in their lives. And um, he taught them, Paul taught them in depth about the coming of Christ when he was with them. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even go into a lot of detail here in the letter because he already taught them. So he said, "By this, you should know this. Remember what I said? He says this over and over again. And so it's important that we understand that Paul already taught them this. He taught them that they had nothing to fear, that this day of the Lord was going to be a horrendous day, but they weren't going to be there. He taught them that Jesus would come, that he would rapture his church out of the world, and then there would be a day of the Lord that the Bible refers to the day of the Lord, which is God unleashing his wrath here on earth. And he goes into detail about how you're not part of that. You're not part of darkness, that you should be under the wrath of God. And that's why sometimes even as believers, it's good to reflect on the idea that, you know what, Christ took our judgment. He paid for our sins. We are no longer under the judgment of God. Because you hear even believers sometimes, you know, they'll say, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing wrong, you know. It's just, man, I'm having a trial after trial after trial. And they think it has something to do with God's getting them for something. Now, God does discipline us, right? He disciplines us. If we are in persistent sin, unrepentant sin, he will discipline us. But on the other hand, that's, that comes out of the loving heart of God to, to win us back, okay, to make sure that we know that he's a, a loving father that wants us to what, confess our sins because he is what faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He tells us that. It's kind of like if you knew that you were going to go to your mom and dad as a little child and you, you, you took the quarter off the desk or the cookie out of the jar, whatever you weren't supposed to do, and you got caught, they knew you did it, and they said, you know, did you do it? And you knew that if you confessed, right, it would probably go okay. You might get a little discipline, but, but if you start lying about it, <laughs> all right, it's going to get worse, all right? And that's where our relationship with the Lord, we just need to come clean when we fail, when we falter, when whatever we do. That's why the Bible says not if we confess, but it should really read, I believe, since we confess. Why wouldn't we go to God and tell him our sins? Because there's no judgment there. There's only forgiveness in Christ. And so we shouldn't be hesitant to make our way straight to the Lord when we falter and we fail. And we all do, by the way. Okay, there's no one here that's perfect. We had a a funeral here yesterday and probably had, I don't know, Emmanuel probably, there's probably 60, 80 90 people here. And um, it was uh, Cleo Mannings, who used to be a member here. Her son's, her son, uh, second wife, passed away. And so we had a service, and they just said, yeah, you know, okay, Pastor, just do whatever you do. I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, ask Emmanuel. I mean, they pretty much heard the gospel for about 20 minutes. You know, and and... I think I could, I, I told him afterwards, I, th- I wonder what they're thinking. 
They're a little caught off guard. You know, they come to church to a funeral and they think, okay, this would probably be safe. Um, but, you know, I thought, you know what? Here's a captive audience. We have to talk about death. Most of the people were older, probably 60s, 70s, 80s. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm just going to let it rip. And I did. And, you know, I'm, I'm praying that God would do a work in these folks' hearts, you know. Uh, and it, it went well, other than I kept on calling the deceased, whose name was Carrie, I kept on calling her Carol. And Carol was her sister who was sitting right down here. <laughs> so after like the third time, I said, hey, you know, I'm really sorry. I really don't want you to die. You know, I mean, that's not my intent here. You're living. That's good. I get just getting you mixed up with your, with your sister. So anyway, but I just go to say that, that we need to take advantage of every opportunity, right? Because time is ticking. This moment in history will come when Christ returns for his church. And this day of the Lord will be ushered in when this uh, Antichrist makes himself out to be God in the middle of the tribulation. Well, he gets down to verse 13 here, and he tells us, basically, Paul wants us to know, he says, first of all, but. See that little word there, but? Uh, it's a very important word in the original language. Day, D-E, is, is how you spell it. And, and basically, it means in contrast to what was before. In contrast to what was before. So what's he saying here? He's saying in contrast to those who will believe the lie of the Antichrist, because that's the people who are given this strong delusion that they may believe, verse 11, what is false. And the lie is basically that this Antichrist is Christ. (laughs) I believe that's what the lie is. Some people believe it's you know, where did all the people go in the rapture? Who knows? But I think it has to do more with the Messiah. He's impersonating the, the Messiah. And so they actually start worshiping him as the Messiah. And it's, it's in contrast to that, he says, we, speaking of believers, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. And then he describes who this is, the, the Thessalonians. The, the Thessalonican church there, he says, brothers beloved by the Lord. Beloved brothers by the Lord. Brothers beloved by the Lord. Do you ever think that God, I mean, I mean, we know that, we hear this all the time, God, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. But have you ever just pondered that? Have you ever just stopped and said, what does that mean? Because, I mean, we say it just rolls off our tongue. You know, God's love the world. But what does that mean? It really means what we're celebrating here this morning, as we already did, in communion. He loved us so much that he gave his only son, right? That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But he loves us. Not just as a whole, but as individuals. He loves our personalities. He loves the way we look. He loves how our voice sounds and what color our eyes are. I mean, he loves everything about us because we're his children, we're his creation. And so Paul wants them to know 
Look, don't freak out. And why they were freaking out is because they thought they were in the day of the Lord. Paul told them, you won't be there because the rapture is going to happen. But then someone, they were going through all these trials. And the day of the Lord is going to be a day of trials. And so they thought, wow. But then somebody wrote a letter, remember? We talked about that. A fake letter saying it was from Paul. Saying, hey, uh, by the way, uh, you're in the day of the Lord. You missed the rapture. And somebody was floating this letter around the church trying to confuse them. And they got panicked. Because they saw all this stuff going on around them, and rightfully so. I mean, think about it. If you came to church one day and nobody was here on a Sunday, you would get a little panicked, I would think. You'd be like, oh, did I miss it? Oh, no, what's going to happen, right? I mean, that's how they felt. They were panicked in their, in their hearts, in their souls. And so Paul had to kind of lay out once again, listen, you can't be in the day of the Lord, Thessalonians, first of all, because... The rapture hasn't happened yet. The rapture hasn't happened yet. And the Antichrist won't be revealed until the rapture happens and the tribulation begins. It's impossible. And so God spares us from that time of wrath through the rapture. And so he wants them to know, listen, in opposition to these people who are going to become deluded by God's delusion that they would believe what was false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. See, this is the key. Where do your pleasures come from? What are your desires? What are your beliefs? Do you believe the truth? Or are you believing lies? Uh, we have to be careful with this. And so he says, instead of believing the lie, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. And then he tells us why. I mean, why is Paul making such a big deal about this? He's trying to remind them of what their roots are. And he says, because, that, that word basically means hoti in, in the original language, it, it means this is the reason for this. Okay, this is, this is why. And so he, he gives them several reasons, which we'll be going over in the coming weeks, but I just want to hit the first one today because it's, it's rather important. He says, brothers beloved by the Lord, because, what's it say? God, what? God chose you as first fruits. God chose you. Um, this is one of the reasons for this exhortation. Why is Paul doing this? Because he wants them to understand where their salvation is coming from. They were panicking. They were thinking things are out of control. And he's like, hey, wait, time out. You're one of the chosen. God has saved you. God chose you. And what's interesting, when you look at this the choice of God in verse 13, God chose you as the first fruits. It's, it's basically in the, what they call the heiress middle tense. And what it means is that God did this all on his own accord. You had nothing to do with it. There was nothing in you that God saw that said, oh, I want him on my team. <laughs> I want her, oh, she, she cooks a good 
good fellowship meal, or he plays a piano, or he plays a guitar. I want him. I need. No, it had nothing to do with you. It was God's sovereign choice. And we know that to be true because if you'll turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, or chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4, it tells us this, this idea of God choosing us, we call it the doctrine of what? The doctrine of election. All right, God elects us. Some people have a real problem with this. I mean, they really get, you know, everything up in a bundle over this, and they, they think, no, 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 that can't be true. That can't be true. It is true. It says it over and over and over on every page of Scripture almost. God chose, God chose, God chose. Verse 4 of chapter 1 Ephesians, it tells us that God chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. Before you were ever even created, he chose you. How does that work? I don't know. (laughs) I don't have the mind of God. Just remember, God is not limited to time. He transcends time. So there is no yesterday. There is no tomorrow. There was never a day really in God's mind, on God's timeline, that you didn't exist. But there was a time when he created you. It's interesting. Or 2 Timothy, verse 9 of chapter 1. 2 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 9, it says, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, right? It's all God, it's not us, but according to what? His own purposes and His own grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from when? All eternity. All eternity. See, the redeemed, those who are saved, are those whose names basically have been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That's what Revelation 3, 8 says. Revelation 17, 8 says that. And for that reason, because we are chosen, we are are elect, those are the words that the New Testament uses to describe us over and over again. It commonly refers to believers as what? The elect. Well, if you're referred to as the elect, that must be because he elected you. That's election. And some people say, well, that's not fair. It also refers to the church, those who have come to Christ as the chosen ones. See, and a lot of times you can give people the wrong picture when you use those words, chosen or elect. Because people look at you and go, who do you think you are? Right? Yeah, I'm the, I'm, excuse me, I'm Steve Combs, I'm chosen. <laughs> are you chosen? I'm elect. God wanted me on his team. No. See, this is what I'm trying to see. That word means he didn't choose you because of who you are. You weren't even around when he chose you. Think about that. There's nothing in you that he liked or disliked and said, oh, I'm going to choose that or I'm not going to choose that. No, he divinely set his love on us for no purpose that we could ever even comprehend or understand. It's the sovereign choice of God. 
And if you are of the persuasion to say, well, that doesn't sound fair, Pastor, well, then you better go back and read your scripture. Because you've got to decide, well, is God unfair? Could God be unfair? If God's holy, the answer is no. <laughs> if you want a God like everybody else has, then I guess you could have a God. But you know what? There's only one God, the true God. And that God is perfect in every way. Everything he does, everything he, he programs, all, the, all the, the purposes of God, they're perfect in every way. They may not look perfect to us, but they are in God's own way. See, the doctrine of God's sovereign elective love has a lot of benefits for us, you could say. First of all, it, it crushes human pride. <laughs> it crushes human pride. It does not allow us, really, to be in heaven one day, bragging, hey, you know why I'm here? Well, I'll tell you why I'm here. Here's what I did when I was on earth. I was a servant of Jesus, and I, oh boy, I sacrificed, I did all that, and finally he said, yep, okay, you, got, you did enough, and I'm going to come bring you home. No does not work that way. And so when you say, wait, God chose you before you were even there, it'd be like assigning a, a quarterback that you didn't even know could pick up a football, but you signed him anyway. That would be kind of weird. But that's exactly what God did. It crushes human pride. Because who gets all the credit for salvation if God chooses us? God does. God does. And some people say, well, I, I believe that God elects us, but I believe that he elects us based on our response to the gospel. So that argument basically says back in the annals of time, you know, God looks down through the corridors of time and he says, oh, Steve Converse is going to respond when his brother shares the gospel with him on that day. So I know he's going to come to Christ, so i got to elect him now. But I'm electing him, not because I want to elect him, but because of his response to the gospel. That is totally backwards. Who does that put in charge of your salvation? You. Or me. And it, it doesn't work that way. This is something that only God can do. That's why the whole idea of being saved, being, what, born again, right, is foreign to us. Born to Nicodemus, born again, what am I supposed to do? Go back in the womb, come back out, I don't understand, Jesus. Right? Those kind of terms we don't comprehend. But God was just kind of telling us, you know what, you are so far gone. You are so far off the ramp. There's no way you're ever going to return. So I just got to start all over. So I'm just going to make you a brand new creature in Christ. I'm going to transform you through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit. So this doctrine of election crushes human pride. It exalts God as he receives praise for his love for us because there's no reason why he should love us. We're sinners bent on just going the opposite direction that God wants us to go in, but he loves us anyway. 
But God demonstrated his love toward us in that what? We were yet sinners. Christ died for us. See, so many world religions, what they tell you is, you know what? Yeah, get yourself cleaned up and then you can come. <laughs> then you can be part of the club. You got to do this, you got to do that, you know, and they have their little lists of do's and don'ts. Not so with Christ. And you look at some of the followers that Christ had. He proved it. I mean, what did the, the Pharisees say? Why does, why does your teacher, why does this guy who's calling himself the Messiah, why is he a friend of sinners? They didn't understand that because in their religiosity, it was like you keep sinners away. Because if you don't, if, you, if you're around sinners, you could possibly become unholy, unclean. It's ridiculous, but that's what they believed. It produces joy as we rejoice in our salvation. It grants incredible privilege in every way. If you read Ephesians chapter 1, just read that. Maybe when you go home this afternoon, take Ephesians and open up and read chap- chapter 1. It talks about our salvation. Matter of fact, read the whole first three chapters of Ephesians. <laughs> it talks about basically theology. It talks about our salvation, who we are in Christ and everything. And then in chapter 4, Paul says, you know what, now that I've told you all this good stuff about your position in Christ, here's how you practice it in the remaining chapters. Very practical. But we have incredible privilege in Christ because of Christ's work on the cross. It promotes holiness in the lives of the elect. It tells us that in Colossians 3. But I think what Paul has in mind, the reason why he brings it up here in this text, is because this doctrine of election, the idea that God chose us, it gives us security in our salvation. It gives us security in our salvation. It provides security for us that we would otherwise not be allowed to even entertain and in, I read this the, the, this morning for our worship team, but in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, this is what Paul says. He says, and I am sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, a Christian, he who began a good work in you, uh, will get tired of your constant whining and he'll just <laughs> give up. <laughs> no. I am sure of this, Paul says. In other words, I know this to be true without a doubt. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We're all a work in progress, are we not? None of us are complete. So don't get real high on your, you know, rights self-righteous you know, self and think, oh, I go to church, I'm committed to church, I do all this, I do all that. Except by the grace of God, there go I. I mean, you're, you're, you're one, one decision away from failure in your Christian life at any one moment in time, right? We all are. And what Paul is saying is, hey, don't freak out, Thessalonians. You're, you're freaking out over something that you don't even, it's not even true. First of all, you're not in the day of the Lord. But you've forgotten something. You've forgotten something so basic in your Christian walk, how you got salvation. 
Because they probably thought, well, wait a minute. If the rapture happened and we're in the day of the Lord, then maybe I'm not saved. And maybe and they start backtracking, right? And, and that, that unravels real quick. Because you begin to question God's authority. And that's really what the Antichrist is all about. He knows he can't win the battle. But what's he want to do? He wants to put doubts. He wants to put uh, misunderstandings, confusion in your mind as believers. So that when things happen in your life, you start to doubt what? Not only your own abilities, but you, you start to doubt God's abilities. And pretty soon you start thinking, well, God, where are you? Wait a minute. You know, you said that you'd save me and, and all this stuff, and it was going along well, and I'm trying to be more committed, and then all this stuff happens in my, in my life. What's going on? Well, he tells us here in our, in our text, because he says God chose us as the first fruits, or, or at the beginning, you could say, all the way back before time even began, we were chosen by the Spirit. Um, uh, to be saved, he says. To be saved. And this is, this is why God chose us. But the fact that God chose you and you didn't choose him is a very important point. And you say, well, but I did make a decision for Christ. Yeah, you did. You have to. Right? The Bible says believe, confess. But never forget that God allows that. He draws you. He does that work in your heart to bring you to the point of, of your own uh, lack of dependence upon yourself. And you realize, you know what? I can't go anywhere but up. I've got to go to God. Because you're, you're on the mat on your back and you have nowhere to turn to. And so finally you turn to Christ and you say, Lord, save me. And God allows that. He, he, he woos you. He, he allows through his Holy Spirit that decision to be made. But this is a work of God. It's a divine work of God. And so he says here that God chose us as the first fruits to be saved. To be saved. And that's a very important uh, point is when he chose us at the beginning um, why he chose us he chose us to be saved he did not want us to go to hell and you say well what about that person i don't know i don't know if they're saved i don't know if they'll get saved i don't know if they're part of the elect or if they're not that's not of my business that's way above my pay grade and it's way above your pay grade we don't worry about that that's why jesus said go into where Go preach to the elect. No, he says go into all the world, right? And you, you offer them the free gift of salvation through Christ. What they do with it, that's going to be on them. And by the way, don't fall for the lie that some people believe that, well, if God chose us and we're going to heaven, if these people are going to hell, why are they going to hell? Some people say, well, because God didn't choose them. No. That's not why they're going to hell. They're going to hell because they made a willful decision to reject God's free gift of salvation. And you say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. I know. (laughs) It makes no sense to me either. But somehow, 
in God's mind, it makes perfect sense. We're held accountable for our rejection of the gospel. We're held account for our own sin. God offers us salvation. And I believe, by the way, it's a legitimate offer that we can give them. Uh, Even Jesus reached out to Judas right up to the end. And it says that he was, you know, before the foundation of the world, set out to be the son of perdition that caused all these problems. And yet Jesus continued to, Judas, you don't have to do this, you know. I mean, even up right through Judas, you're really going to, you're going to do this with a kiss? Come on. I mean, you know, it, it was very, from the heart of love of Christ, he did not want Judas to go down that road. And so, I, I get it, there's some conflict there, it doesn't make logical sense, but why did he choose, choose us? He chose us to be saved. And how does he choose this? It says there, through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. You have to believe to be saved. You have to believe what? You have to believe the gospel. You have to believe who Jesus Christ is. Don't believe when people say, oh yeah, this this person, you know, he, he came to Christ, but he never even heard about Jesus, ever. He just saw a vision or something. No. The Bible is very clear. How are they going to be saved if they don't hear? How are they going to hear if what? Without a preacher. Without someone. It doesn't mean someone that stands up here. It means all of us are preachers of the gospel in one way or another. How will people ever come to Christ if we don't do that task that God has laid out for us? It would be impossible. And so this idea of election... You know, I just wanted to touch on this because it's a very, very, very deep well we're drinking from. And we'll be going over this in the coming weeks because not only did he choose us, but it also tells us that he called us. And that really refers to that effectual calling uh, to salvation. It's not, it's not, not calling you on the phone. It means he's calling you to be saved. Okay, and we're going to be talking about that next week. But, you know, I don't know about you, but I am in awe whenever I look at verses and and scriptures like this because it is amazing to me um, that God really does. He really does love us um, with a love that goes beyond our wildest understanding or comprehension. And, you know, if you're here today and you have yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ... I pray that you, today might be the day. You might go home and figure out, you know what, I think God does love me. Matter of fact, I know he does because his word tells me that he loves me. And you know what, have you, have you committed your life to him? Are you born again? Are you saved? Have you seen God do a saving work in your life? Is there a transformative moment in your life that you can point to? That you can say, you know what, yeah, I, here I was not walking with God, but now, yes. I'm not perfect, but you know what, I see his hand in my life every day. And then that, you go along with the desire to pray, the desire to fellowship, the desire to read his word and grow and be nurtured. That's, that's what's indicative of someone who knows Christ. It's not someone who just comes to church. That, that does not make a Christian any more than you know, going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. Okay? It just doesn't work that way. 
Uh, we're, we're studying, we've been studying discipleship on Wednesday nights, and we've been talking what, what, it makes, what makes a disciple of Christ. And they're hard lessons, but they're very much needed because it reminds us that, you know what, we can't do this on our own, Christians. We need the Spirit of God to work in and through us every single day. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for our time Lord, that you have provided for us, and uh, thank you for this communion table that reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ. And Lord, we thank you for your love for us, uh, love beyond comprehension. And Lord, I pray that even as you have that love for us, you, you command us that we should love one another in the same fashion as the body of Christ. So I pray for our fellowship across the way that it would be meaningful and, and blessed and bless the food to our bodies as well. But Lord, if there's any here who've yet to put their faith or trust in Christ or listening um, on the live stream, Father, we pray that you would have them cry out to you. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin, Lord. I want to live for you and you alone. And God, we pray that you would do that work in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.